Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. I'm so excited to be here with you just learning about God and hanging out together. So why don't we start our Bible study portion of this morning with just a brief word of prayer inviting God to be with us. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear God, we sang about being changed and going from glory to glory to glory, Lord, and that sounds really nice. It sounds really nice to be made more and more like you, God, to have your spirit changing us into better and better people who are more alive and more like you, God. And so we thank you for doing this in our lives, even though at times it's hard to notice, God. And we ask that this morning you would continue to do that, that you would enliven us with your word, lead us in your path, and transform us, God. Make us renewed this morning in our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it seems like God is tempting us. I get migraine headaches from time to time, and so I have to avoid uh, certain foods that can trigger my migraines. <clears throat> Problem is that a lot of the foods that give me migraines just so happen to be some of the most delicious foods. And so one of my relatives was over recently who wasn't aware of my migraine situation, and she offered everybody some delicious chocolate-covered cherries. She came out with this bucket of chocolate-covered cherries from Trader Joe's, and of course, everybody flocked and started gobbling up these chocolate-covered cherries, except for me, because I didn't want to get a migraine. And so my, my relative, she noticed, and she said, oh, Luke, aren't you going to have a chocolate-covered cherry? And I looked at him, and I thought, oh, and I said, oh, you know what? I better pass, but thank you. And she said, oh, okay. Well, I'll just put them right here where you can see them, just in case you change your mind. Sometimes it seems like God is tempting us. Now, I know that's a silly example, but really, as we go through life, we're constantly surrounded by temptations. And when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray, you know, Lord, don't lead us into temptation. But sometimes it seems like that's exactly what he does. I mean, we want to follow Jesus. We want to do what's right and live a godly life. And yet, if God also wants us to live a godly life, then why do we find ourselves in our careers, perhaps, in a, in a situation where being a little bit dishonest could really help us get ahead? I mean, why would he create the perfect scenario where doing what's wrong looks so good and doing what's right is so difficult if he's on our side. And he's God. I mean, he's in control of everything, right? If, if, if God wants us to walk closely with Jesus and to do what's right, then why at the same time would he allow us to go through a rough patch in our marriage? And just so happens that at the same time we're going through a rough patch in our marriage, an opportunity to have an affair is dangling right in front of us. I mean, why, God? Why would you create these situations in life if you're not trying to tempt us? If you're not trying to get us to sin, why would my family member do something to me that makes me so angry that I'm deeply tempted to just hang on to bitterness and not let it go because it was so wrong and I don't want to pretend like it wasn't? 
oftentimes it seems like that's exactly the case. Like God is the one who's making it so difficult to do what we want to do, to, to walk with Jesus and, and to live a godly, a godly life. And of course, as I say all of this, you can tell it's an exercise. I mean, obviously, we don't believe that God is actually the one who's tempting us because we know better. We know that God is good and he's for us and he doesn't do evil and all that stuff. But sometimes, sometimes it's helpful to remember how it is that we know or why we know for sure that God isn't the one who's trying to get us to sin. That God isn't the source of all these temptations in our lives. Because it's going to be really difficult to walk closely with Jesus in life if at the same time we're trying to follow him and live a godly life, in the back of our heads we're thinking, well, it sure would be a lot easier, God, if you weren't making it so hard. If you weren't the one putting all these temptations in my life and making it almost impossible to do what's right. And what we see when we look at the Bible is that one of the reasons we know that God isn't the one trying to get us to sin is that that's just not who God is. And when we let ourselves go down that path and start sort of thinking of God as the one to blame for our sin and temptation, we're actually misunderstanding something essential about who God is. So we're going to be in James chapter 1 this morning. James chapter 1, if you want to read along, and we'll put the verses on the screen as well. We'll start reading in verse 13 of chapter 1, and as we do, listen to how we know that God's not the one who's tempting us because that's just not who he is. Listen, listen to what it says starting in verse 13. It says this, <clears throat> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It says when you're tempted which, of course, means right off the bat, you will be tempted in life, and we know that, but it's kind of nice to hear the Bible acknowledge that we're normal. He says, when you're tempted, don't blame God. He says, don't say God is the one tempting me. And the reason he gives is he says, God can't be tempted by evil. In other words, God cannot be successfully tempted by evil because that's not who God is. God, we find in Scripture, is holy and righteous and good, and he desires to do what is right and beautiful and true, and so you can't tempt him to do evil. Now, when Jesus walked the earth, we know that, that he was tempted like we are. There was opportunities to sin placed in front of him, and in his humanity, he felt the pull of that, but we also know that he never gave in to the sin, that he never followed through with the temptation, and part of the reason that he didn't, we believe, is because he couldn't. It's because he is bound by his very nature of holiness and goodness and beauty to only ever desire what is right and good. And so he says, if, if God is completely opposed to sin, if no part of him can, can find delight in everything that's wrong and broken in our world, 
Well, then why would he be trying to get you and me to do the very thing that he hates? Sin and injustice and wrong. It doesn't make sense, he says. And so, well, we should acknowledge, of course, that God does allow trials into our lives. We studied that last week, and even the previous verse alludes to that. But trials are designed to have the exact opposite outcome of a temptation. The trials that God allows into our lives are designed to to help us grow in our faith, to become more and more godly and sin less and less. It's a very different thing. And so, he says, when you're tempted, when the sin is in front of you and it looks so good, and you're drawn to it, and you're about to give in to it, don't blame God. Instead, he says, look somewhere else if you're trying to find the source of that. Look what he says in the very next verse. He says this in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He says, you want to know where temptations come from? He says, they come from you. They come from me. He says, don't blame God, but acknowledge that there's parts of you that, unlike God, are attracted to what is wrong, are attracted to selfish indulgences, to self-righteousness, to sin that we're not perfect, we're, we're not completely transformed yet. And that's not exactly the answer that we like to hear. We don't exactly get stoked when you tell us, hey, you know how from time to time you fall short of what you could have done in your thoughts and your actions and your behaviors and your habits? Yeah, that's your fault. That's because you are attracted to do horrible things and you haven't become the person you can be yet completely. That's kind of offensive. It's actually humiliating. And yet, at the same time, there's something beautiful and freeing that you experience when you stop trying to blame anybody else for your own evil behaviors, even God. And instead, you accept what the Bible says and cut right to the chase and say, you know what? Life is complicated, there's lots of factors involved, but I'm not going to shift my own personal responsibility for the things that I say and think and do. There is actually power in that. I attended an AA meeting once. I was assigned as part of a counseling class to attend an AA meeting and to take notes and give a report on it. And so I, I sat there in this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and it was a beautiful experience. Uh, Something became clear very quickly when I joined this room just packed full of men and women. And that was that this was a place where you didn't have to pretend like you had it all together. One person after another, I watched men and women stand up and share openly about the desires that they have to do horrible things, to drink alcohol to excess, to be violent towards others, to ignore their family and just please themselves. It was so clear that you didn't have to come to this meeting 
and have it all together. But you could be honest about the fact that you actually didn't. And yet there was something else that was immediately obvious as I sat there in this meeting. And that was that this was a place of incredible transformation. One after another, people stood up and in the same breath they acknowledged the parts of them that are still drawn to evil. They praised God for the progress that they've been making. Whether it was a week, whether it was a month, or whether it was 15 years, we celebrated and we clapped and we cried and it was beautiful and moving. And the guy who was leading the whole thing, at the very end, he wrapped it up by saying, if no one's told you that they love you today, I love you. And that was the end. Oh, it was such a powerful experience. In fact, it was so moving that I left that AA meeting determined to bring that same spirit of honesty about our brokenness to my life group here at church, to my friends who meet and study the Bible together, to, to do what I could to create an atmosphere where we didn't have to show up week after week and pretend like we were perfect and that we had it all together and there wasn't still parts of us that we needed God to touch and renew every single day so that we could actually find the renewal and the transformation that comes when we stop shifting blame for our behaviors and start acknowledging that the temptations that are so alluring, well, this text says we're lured out by our own desires. We delight in them because we delight in them. And it's no one else's fault. And we delight in them, of course, because in the moment, they look good. I mean, we're not idiots. When we're tempted to do what we know is wrong, it's not that we decide it's not wrong in that moment, but in that moment, we decide that even though it's wrong, it's the best thing for us. And doing what's right in that moment would really hurt us. And so how could you expect us? We're not sadistic. We want what's in our own best interest. And so we choose to sin because to do what's right almost seems like if God wanted us to do what's right, he wouldn't make it so hard. I mean, if God wanted me to be honest in my career, then why would he make it so easy to get ahead in a situation by being dishonest when I can provide for my family? If God wanted me to do what's right, then why would he provide an opportunity for an affair with someone who is so much more affectionate than my spouse? Why, if God wants me to do what's right, does he create a situation where holding onto my bitterness and anger proves that I still care about what's right and true? I don't want to deny that and let this go. That would be so ridiculous. And the converse is true as well. We see the, the, the difficulty and pain of doing what's right at the same time that we see the benefits and rewards of doing what's wrong. So much so that we kind of say, well, God, congratulations, you created the perfect scenario for me to fail. And yet what's interesting about Scripture is we find that not only has God not created the perfect scenario for us to fail in those moments, but he is always holding out something better than the trap of sin that we're about to fall into. 
He actually is right there in those moments saying, trust me when I tell you what looks like it's for your good is not, but I have got something that is truly, truly good. We're going to pick up reading in the next verse, in verse 16. And as we start reading in verse 16 here, listen to how, listen to how we know it's not God who's tempting us. Because God's actually the one standing by with something better for us. It says this, starting in verse 16. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, he's still on the same subject of temptations and where they come from. And he says, don't be deceived. Meaning, don't think they come from God. And what's his evidence? God's not providing you with those opportunities to sin. He's the one who provides what is good, everything perfect and beautiful and right in life. That's what God provides. Don't blame him for the temptation to do what's wrong. No, he's always there with the gifts that are truly good and truly for your benefit. And it's helpful to remember that in those moments. It's helpful to remember that when sin looks like it's the only thing that will benefit us, that God promises that it's a trap that is trying to lure us out like he said earlier and that he's actually got something better. There's a parable of a, of a woman who was working at her job and she was in the administrative staff and one day she got a phone, or one day someone actually arrived for a meeting with, uh, with the CEO of the company. And so she called the CEO and she said, hey, you're, you know, your one o'clock meeting is here. Um, they're waiting for you in the lobby. And her boss was like shocked because he had completely forgotten about the meeting. And he said, oh no, I double booked. I'm in a different meeting. I'll make my way right down there, tell him I'm stuck in traffic and I'll be there in 30 minutes. And she was kind of on the spot, but she said, oh, well, um, okay, I, I, I'm happy to tell him you'll be here uh, as soon as you can, but, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to tell him you're stuck in traffic if you're not. And her boss was so confused and he said, I, I, this is not a conversation. This is a very important client. Tell him I'm stuck in traffic. I'll be there in 10, or 30 minutes. Well, he hung up the phone, but she didn't convey the message that he asked her to. She did as much as she could to placate the, the, the client without including the lie. And the next day, she was fired. And as the story goes, the following morning, uh, this young woman, her, her, her elementary age uh, son was leaving for school that day. And as he's leaving, he sees mom wearing pajamas at the breakfast table instead of getting ready for work. And so he asks her, um, mom, why aren't you getting ready for work? And of course, she explains the situation. Well, I told the truth at my job, and my boss fired me. And the little boy absorbs that. He takes that in and starts to think about it. And that, that weekend, that Sunday morning, as he gathered at church with his family and everybody stood up to sing the opening song, that little boy looked around and he thought to himself, you know what? All this stuff might be true. Jesus might really be worth following even when it's costly. 
And the point of the story is, you tell me, would it have been better for that mother to, to lie and keep her job and lie later to keep it again and be a little dishonest later to keep it again? Or would it be better in the end if telling the truth let her son see what commitment to Christ looks like and the value of the Lord, if that were to lead him to put his trust in Christ and to follow him for the rest of his life, which was better? Now, we don't always see it. It's not always that neat and tidy how what God offers us is always for our good and the good of the world. And what sin offers is always a trick and a trap that lowers, our, uh, lowers us in so many ways you can imagine. But what this verse points out is don't be so quick to fall for the trap of sin. Maybe you are honest at your job, and you don't get ahead, and eventually you have to leave because all your colleagues pass you up and you can't make the income you need to by telling the truth. And maybe you don't see any benefit of it, but your colleagues, one or two of them, they see and they know exactly what happens. And later down the line in their life, as they hear more and more about Jesus, and who knows when, if they accept him someday. And a part of it was the commitment and the beauty of someone who was willing to do what was right, even though it cost them a lot, way back along the way. Or maybe you don't have that affair, even though everything inside of you is screaming to just do it, no one will ever know. And not only does your marriage improve, find better, a better place, a better season as time goes on, but then one day at a men's retreat, there's another man there. And he's this close, he tells you in a moment of honesty, to throwing his marriage away, destroying his family, and having an affair. And you're able to just tell him in a moment of honesty, hey, I've been there too, and it's hard. Here's some stuff I tried. I'll be praying for you. And call me if you need to talk, because there's a better way. Or maybe you do decide against everything inside of you to let go of the bitterness you're holding against a family member. And it takes great faith, and it's a process, and it's hard. But before you know it, you start realizing that you're having conversations with family members. You're ministering to people in your family that you would have never been able to talk to and connect with if you were still holding that bitterness. And maybe even years down the line, there's a reconciliation that happens in your family that could have never taken place if you had held on to that bitterness and been unwilling to be kind and gracious to that person in your family who still perhaps doesn't understand how much they wronged you. And maybe your grace will even help them understand someday what happened. I mean, of course, our perfect example of this is Jesus, right? You look at Jesus and you're like, he always did what was right and it always cost him a lot, it seems. I mean, in the end, he only made it to 33 before they literally crucified him. And yet we look at the life of Jesus and we say his life, death, and resurrection is the reason that we all live forever. And though it cost him everything, it was an incredible good that he will reap for eternity with us in communion for all time. And the same is true to a degree for us. That though it might cost us and though it might look like suffering, it is always truly for God's kingdom of good and light. Every time we say no to sin and say yes to following Jesus in a situation. And the reason we can do that, or the only reason we can do that, 
is because God allows us to do it. You know, sometimes we get so down about our sin and temptation. You know, we think about any given week or month in our life, and it's easy to sit there and just be like, man, there were so many times where I didn't think what I should be thinking, I'm not saying what I should be saying, I'm not doing what I should be doing. And after a while of kind of living in that rut, you start to feel kind of hopeless. Like, what's the point of even ever trying to follow God if I'm such a sinner? And this incredible, heavy weight of condemnation just starts to feel like home as you drift farther and farther away from the Lord. And one thing I think it's helpful to remember when we find ourselves in those seasons, as we sometimes do, is that while, yes, we are given to temptation and sin, that's not all we're given to. If you're a believer, then there's also a desire in you not only to do what's evil, but there's a desire to do good. There's a desire in every single person who knows the Lord to worship Him and to serve others selflessly and to not just always be selfish all the time. And it might be faint. Like sometimes it seems like it's a dying little teeny little little ember in there, right? But that's the ember that God wants to just fan into a bigger flame in us. It's a gift that he gave us the moment we believed in Christ. It was the spirit of God in us to help us do what we can't do on our own. Because on our own, we don't do what's right. Even when we do what's right, we do it for the wrong reasons. We're corrupt. We're hopeless. We're helpless on our own. But God offers us a free gift of salvation and says, here, let me share my life with you. And I'm willing to live through you. If you'll draw near to me, if you'll remember this gift I've given you and commune with me, you will find yourself doing more and more good. And you will find yourself being less and less attracted to the darkness. He says, test me. It's a miracle and I'll do it in you. You'll forget you even wanted to sin in that way. And you'll find new desires to serve you. One of my relatives related to the woman who tempted me with the chocolate, shared with me at the same family uh, visit about his conversion story. He said, yeah, it was really weird. So I gave my life to Christ, started getting funny feelings inside. He said, I started having different desires. He said, I found that I wasn't as interested in some of the hobbies I had been interested in before that weren't very godly. He said, at the same time, I found that for the first time in my life, I kind of wanted to talk more about God and learn more about the Bible. He said, it was the weirdest thing that was happening in me. And of course, what he's describing is, is salvation, spiritual birth that happens the moment you hear the good news and say yes to it. That life that God puts inside of you that begins to grow. I forgot to read the verse, so we'll read the verse here. It's the last one. The last verse in this section is verse 18. Listen as we read, starting in verse 18, how not only is God not the one who's tempting us, but God is the one who's given us new life to overcome temptation. It says this, starting in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He says, he brought us forth. What's he talking about? He's talking about our spiritual birth 
He's talking about our salvation. The moment we believed what he calls the word of truth and got the God in us moment. And we weren't the first ones. He's talking to people he wrote the letter to, right? He's like, you guys who I'm writing this to, 2,000 years ago, you're the first. This is one of the first letters written Pastor Tim shared with us. And as soon as they heard about Jesus and they accepted the free gift of salvation that's explained in the Bible, he says they were brought forth. They were born again. And then, of course, they pass that word of truth he's talking about onto the next generation, and they pass it on to the next generation. And eventually, you and I, from somebody, heard this word of truth, the message that God loves us and died and rose again so that we could be with him forever. And as soon as we said yes to that message, something in us changed. We were brought forth. We were born again forever. And what this passage is telling us, is reminding us, is that when sin seems so overwhelming, when temptation seems so impossible to overcome, just be careful that you don't say, that you don't give up and just say it must be what God wants or he wouldn't have made it so difficult. No, it's the opposite. He's the one who makes it possible at all to do what's right and good through this spirit that he placed inside of you and he wants you to fan his presence to flame so that you can do more and more good for him. We had a children's ministry director here named Linda McCubbin who retired a few years ago. And she was such a wonderful, godly woman who touched so many of our lives that, of course, we wanted to just thank her for her service. And so on her last, I don't know if it was her last Sunday, but towards the end when we were announcing her retirement, you know, we brought her up here onto the stage, and in two services, we stood on our feet and we gave her a standing ovation. We handed her a gift, and we handed her the microphone. And what she said in that moment is forever burned in my memory. As she stood there and took that microphone and we all leaned in, she said, don't remember me. Remember Jesus. Because he's done great things. And he'll continue to do great things. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of a godly person. It's someone who knows that they're not godly. <laughs> but who believes that God is godly enough. And that he dwells inside of everyone who lets him. And that he will live and work through anyone who fans his presence into flame in their life. And he did that through Linda McCubbin. He touched us through her teaching, through her service, through her Bible studies, through her hospitality, and she's not here to take the credit. She knows that anything good that she did ultimately brings glory to God and not to her. You know, earlier when I began, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned that box of chocolates that was so tempting to me <laughs> sitting there on the table. I stared at that, just wrestling inside, like, do I eat it and suffer for two days or do I not? What I didn't tell you was that um, an amazing thought came to me while I was staring at that. I thought, oh, I've got my own chocolate. And sure enough, I went into the kitchen and I got my secret stash of pure dark chocolate that does not cause migraines. And I broke off a little bit, a little piece of it, and I can still taste that bitter delicious chocolate that I had in that moment. It was so satisfying. 
And I think in a somewhat similar way, this passage reminds us that as we go through life and we're tempted constantly, not just by silly things, but by actual sin, to be careful that the, you, the presence of sin everywhere we seem to turn isn't because God is orchestrating it so that we'll fail. In fact, that's not who he is at all. But he wants us to take personal responsibility for the fact that there's parts of us that are attracted to dark things. And he wants us to realize in that moment that it's a trap, that there's always a better blessing around the corner if we choose what's right, and that the only way we can truly choose what's right from the inside out is when we admit that we can't do it, but that he can, and he's given us his life and his grace to follow him more and more each day for his glory and not for ours. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just think of that song that Switchfoot sings about how it's a beautiful letdown, Lord, about how our salvation, our life, our world, Lord, it's not the way it's supposed to be and it never will be. But you, God, you can make it right. And you have already begun to make it right in us. And that's why we sing so loud, God. That's why we never get tired of telling people about you. Because we can never make you famous enough. We can never make you great enough. Because you're our source of life. You're our source of grace. And God, we acknowledge that even though it seems small sometimes, and even though we don't notice, you have worked through each and every one of us who believe. You have done good things through us. And we pray that you will continue to fan to flame your presence in our hearts so that we might burn bright for the world to see that you are good and you are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.